Hi everybody, I'm Richard Zwicky with the Green Peak and joining me today we have Adam Carlson who is the uh, head of life sciences and cannabis over at uh, ABT which was or ATB which was AltaCorp uh, previously um, and actually I guess you're the managing director of institutional sales as well along the way or have been Adam. Um, you, you've worn a lot of hats and have great respect within the industry. Um, tell us a bit about the change in Alta and uh, to ATB and what it means for the market, but also for you. Sure, and appreciate uh, you having me on today. Uh, I think that the uh, transition from Alta Corp into ATB has been uh, quite a long time coming. Uh, we've been an independent boutique broker uh, for the last decade or so, founded in uh, in 2011. Um, but as we all know, over that last decade, uh, there's been the incentive for uh, brokers and advisors to get larger, uh, get balance sheets, and uh, become more relevant with a full service platform to clients. So n nothing from the client side uh, on an advisory uh, basis should change that much. We just have more to offer. And, uh, and I think that you're going to see from us um, that we're going to increase our market share uh, going forward in the future here. We're the second largest overall lender to the cannabis space in, in Canada. And we've got uh, 10 investment bankers dedicated to the space, along with two research analysts and a full sales and trading platform. Yeah. And, you know, Adam, I mean, for you know, all of our listeners, our listeners are global. You know, there's a strong con Canadian contingent, a lot of Americans and then lot people in Latin and Europe. And, uh, you know, for context, ATB, um, for those of you who haven't dealt with it, is really one of the um, best recognized and res respected independent voices in the market. Um, so, you know, Adam's perspective is already, always really uh, heavily valued by anybody who's operating in the industry. And I know, Adam, you deal with almost everybody across uh, Canada, but I'm sure uh, heading more and more into the U.S. as well. That's correct. We've got a dedicated U.S. MSO analyst. We currently cover somewhere between five and ten companies. We're actively engaged on M&A and capital raises throughout the U.S. space. Obviously, if you're going to be in cannabis, uh, you need exposure to that geography at this time. Absolutely. And, you know, that leads a bit into um, one of my first questions, which is, you know, we've seen the turmoil in the market over the lot in the in the cannabis markets alone, let alone the rest of the uh, stock markets over the last 18 months or so. Um, and now we're seeing activity, you know, lurching forward at different times. Do you, do you see it as new money coming into the market still, or is it the people who got out that are looking to reparticipate and recycling investments? Where do you see it coming from? And is it different in the different markets around the world? Sure. And it's a good question. I think we can <clears throat> we can start off with the U.S. Uh, for, from my perspective, it's mostly been retail-driven. This recent surge in the MSOs uh, on the back of good Q2 uh, operating results, and we expect that to occur in Q3 as well. Mostly Robinhood, interactive brokers. I, I mean, I truly believe that that's where the majority of the volume ha is coming from. With that being said, these are now becoming real businesses. Uh, you know, you look at somebody like Trulieve and, and they've got over $200 million in annualized uh, EBITDA at this point. Uh, that that's, that's a strong business that anyone looking for secular growth amid otherwise an uncertain market uh, with COVID it can gravitate to. And, and the multiples that you're paying on future uh, EBITDA are, are still extremely reasonable. I think that there's, you know, you have political tailwinds and you have fundamental tailwinds and you have momentum tailwinds uh, in, in the U.S. industry. So they've got a little bit of everything for all the different investors. 
The biggest catalyst is obviously going to be ongoing legalization in the U.S. to bring in more institutional capital. Every day you see another uh, large-scale blue chip uh, money manager long only. Uh, that's the right longer term uh, source of capital entering the space. They show up on a new f uh, top five uh, shareholder list of one of the top MSOs. Um, and we expect that trend to uh, to overall continue in the U.S. I'd say in the U in Canada and inter international, it's just been a little bit more challenged because the underlying fundamentals of each business haven't followed suit. And so in Canada, you know, we've we've been involved. I think in in the last quarter alone, we were involved in 18 different uh, transaction capital raises. These are investors, more like hedge funds, that are buying stocks. They're not buying companies. They're there is it's mostly financial engineering, and in, and in the international climate, uh, I, I would say that we're all just struggling from. Uh, revenue fatigue, I would say, to characterize it. The revenues just have not lived up to the expectations until, until we see those revenues uh, come to fruition in the various geographies, uh, I think that investor capital is going to lag. Absolutely. I fundamentally agree with you. But, you know, when you look at that and looking at Canada versus the U.S., the, the U.S. is much more verticalized, especially in certain markets um, where companies have to do everything um, through the supply chain from the seed right through to the customer at every stage um, where the rest of the world is much more on the various components of the business and even Canada's evolved from the early LPs which did almost everything to today there's independent firms that do just the extraction processing versus growers and the like um, how do you see that changing over the next couple of years as the US does liberalize more as more and more markets around the world come on, come online because you've got two very different strategies and business uh, implementations there. Sure. Starting again with the U.S., I think that for the next, uh, let's call it pre-federal -le pre legalization, I think you're going to continue to see bifurcation among on a state-by-state -state basis. There's no other way to do it. The mm -hmm. state legislatures control each of the governing rules, whether that's tax, whether that's retail distribution. Um, so the U.S. MSOs are going to continue to be uh, vertically integrated in each state, and each state is going to dictate whether or not you want to be in cultivation or whether or not you want to be in distribution or whether or not you want to be in extraction or, or however you want to think about it. In um, in Canada, I would say that you're right. Everyone became a jack of all trades quickly. I mean, Canopy is a good example or Aurora is another good example. You, you were incentivized to get as big as possible as quickly as possible. And now they're all going through rationalization of assets. Uh, we're, we're the advisor on behalf of Aurora. Canopy is going through the same thing. Everyone's shutting down cultivation or trying to sell them mostly to local buyers. Uh, and we continue to think that there's less bifurcation among the provinces, so you can be, you can have more of a nationalized footprint because it's federally legal. Uh, but we think that that's going to drive M and A because you really need synergies. Synergies are the most visible part of Canada right now. Uh, right. If you take any mid cap or large cap and put, and put the two together, we estimate that there could be at least $25 million of EBITDA that would drop to the bottom line. And that far usurps uh, anything that the companies can do on an operating basis themselves. And then lastly, to your point, Richard, in international, you know, as you said, everyone's a little bit more geographically, except your, yourself with uh, with Plena, everyone's a little bit more geographically dispersed. Uh, I think that that's going to lend more to joint ventures uh, than it will M&A, just because you cannot get the economies of scale necessarily in any one uh, single geogra uh, geographic place. 
Yeah, and you know, in, in Canada, it's a bit. Canada's a population of 37 million, which is about the same as California, um, spread out over territory twice as large as, almost twice as large as the U.S., the continental U.S. for sure. Obviously, business gets uh, has to adapt differently, but as you know, the state by state uh, open up and come under one legal uh, jurisdiction, those frameworks are going to be interesting to watch who takes the lead because the ones that are verticalized are going to look for efficiencies and the ones that are missing components are going to be looking for assets that make them more competitive. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if the U.S. follows a completely different path than everybody else in how it adapts or does it really fall into line where companies just become more and more efficient in their own way. Um, we have to take a quick break and we'll be back uh, with Adam Carlson from ATB. I'm Richard Zwicky on the Green Peak. And we're back. I'm uh, Richard Zwicky, and joining me today is Adam Carlson from ATB. And Adam, just before the break, we were talking about some of the differences in the markets globally. Um, but as we pick up, and you know, in, outside of the U.S., let's take a look at that for a second. We're seeing more and more M&A activity starting to bubble. In the U.S., of course, there is as well. Different different factors play into it. But one of the things I've always been amazed at, and this, you know, occurred when I was in technology previously, and I'm seeing it in cannabis today um, is, you know, entrepreneurs are, are born risk takers. They, they start businesses, not because it's obvious, but because there's a risk and there's an opportunity and they're going to be it's something they're passionate about doing. But then as they grow and, and things get larger and larger, uh, there's more corporate that comes into it and more corporate isn't necessarily a bad thing. There's structure and benefits and everything else. But then they hit the M&A period. And that's an opportunity for, you know, people to grow and companies to grow. And, you know, many, many years ago, I learned, you know, it's better to be a small fish in a big pond than a big fish in a tiny pond with no market. And that's a bit of my perspective on M&A. It's a, it's a path to growth. But I see that so many entrepreneurs become risk averse when it hits the M&A phase. Is it founderitis? Is it fear of missing out that if they do something and through M&A that they're giving up something or or is it just what is it you think that drives that change in people or is it really the company's just transition from a founder run business to a more corporate run business and so the the drivers are different yeah it's, it's a great question and something that we're obviously feeling right now I think that we're 
call it 75% of the way through the recycling of the entrepreneurs out of the uh, CEO or, or C-suite positions in the cannabis companies and on to uh, managers of larger companies that would be more appropriate to drive M&A through. The issue is that entrepreneurs, there's a lot of great things to say for those uh, type of personality traits, but they fall in love with their own businesses. And I think that they have an apprehension to look at uh, their own misgivings uh, from an outside perspective. And that's what we see in M&A is the biggest shortfall. If uh, there's $1 of revenue for an entrepreneur and $1 of, of revenue for uh, another company that they're looking to merge with. Fundamentally, the entrepreneurs uh, deem their dollar of revenue as more appealing than the others. And, and, and without that understanding that uh, synergies just need to happen, the market is bigger than just the understanding of you know, what you're doing next on a micro basis uh, from an operating perspective. It really inhibits M and A, but I, I do think that we're at an inflection point where that's about to change. I, I hope so. I know uh, I, I always find founderitis uh, challenging, where people think you know their their business and everything about it is their baby and it's perfect, and you can't they can't admit the blemishes nor look beyond themselves. And quite honestly, it's fundamental to any business that we have to plan for ourselves and everybody else getting hit by a truck. And if that happens, the business has to continue. And uh, if you don't have that mentality, you get stuck, I think. But with that, how many, how often do businesses come into you and want the assistance with regards to growing and either through M&A or other, you know, through funding and everything else, and you have to sit back and assess how to help them across that challenge that help them recognize that they have to, they have to adapt to grow? Or generally, do you find that the entrepreneur, the business people and the entrepreneurs who come to you have crossed that threshold? I think what's occurring right now in the, in the market today is everyone within Canada and, and international continues to look uh, for new capital issuances. Yep. And given the, the dearth of availability that's available in the market, that pushes companies towards more so the M&A discussion. Um, it's it's just as we spoke about earlier on this podcast. It's it's very difficult to find that new fundamental buyer. Um, so the lack of capital is driving uh, when it drives the M and A. Uh, it leads itself into a, a a a more motherhood discussion about where to next for the company and and does the world need another you know twenty five million dollar market cap player in the market? Right. No. Absolutely. And you know when you look at that and the challenge with M and A today for some is, you know, companies raised money at phenomenal valuations a year and a half, two years, three years ago. And today, you know, the industry is off incredible amounts. I mean, we see companies that are off 97% and it's not uncommon, unfortunately. We see some that are off 65% and people are looking at it as being a positive. Um, but the reality is it's all relative, right? If there's two companies and they both have similar assets, they do have a similar starting point. But then it becomes a question of all the intangibles. But why do people get hung up in the, the numbers instead of relative valuations to even start discussions? What I, I think the, the biggest issue, and, and I totally get your point, uh, is that there's no certainty of the financial expectations of either company. Right. And what we've seen is 98% of all cannabis companies have missed expectations. I mean, as I said, we're, sure. we're one of the senior lenders in, in the Canadian space. We get 
13 week cash flows for a, a majority of companies that we lend to. Uh, and, and I would hazard to say that it's, it's almost becoming an, an, an internal running uh, uh, joke that, you, you know, how, how big is each company going to miss uh, each time? So valuation is relative, sure, but re- valuation is only as good as the forecast underlying it. And that's where the, the credibility starts to erode. The other, the other issue, not only just on the revenue projections and, and pathway to profitability, is that the capital structures are keep changing. So uh-huh. to your point earlier, Richard, uh, there's a number of companies that went out and raised $100 million in a convertible debentures or $50 million in convertible debentures at much higher rates. They now are becoming to a, uh, a maturity deadline for that, for that security. They have to negotiate with the convertible holders. That typically means that um, the convert is going to get exercised at a much lower price uh, and extended in some capacity. So you have a huge amount of shares that are being issued into these micro cap companies uh, all at once while you're trying to get from a non-binding LOI to a definitive agreement. And that just creates a lot of opportunity for interpretation. And again, you, you know, it's a huge gray area. It's very, very difficult to find a way to meet in the middle when that's when that's occurring. It, there is, there is. And I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about forecasts because they're the, I mean, they're horrible right now in the COVID scenario, but they're also, they're challenging in the businesses where, you know, and we face this all the time, where the regulatory framework changes and we're dealing with so many parties. It's not a, as simple as selling, you know, a, a windshield wiper to a uh, retailer who's selling a product. It is a, when we do a sale, we have to deal with seven different parties between ourselves and the customer. And that slows things down. But I think the reality of that situation has generally been misunderstood by entrepreneurs getting into the market. Um, but, you know, all that being said, at the end of the day, we need to focus, everybody needs to focus on fundamentals and drive good value. On that, we have to take our second break, but we'll be back in a minute with Adam Carlson from ATB.
And we're back with Adam Carlson from ATB. And Adam, just before the break, we were talking about some of the challenges companies face with um, projections and everything else and how it's a, a common problem for everybody today who's trying to take stock in the industry. And obviously, as the, uh, the legislation changes in the U.S. or adapts with everything that's going on, it's going to make everybody throw their existing projections out the window and adapt to a new reality again. But one of the things that isn't changing is the inexorable movement um, within the industry and within consumer trends for consumption, moving from flowers to tinctures and encapsulation. And you've done a bunch of analysis around that looking out over the next couple of years. What are you seeing? I believe that it's inevitable that it is going to happen. I think it's a positive catalyst for the corporates themselves and, and the consumer, uh, consumers in the market as well. Uh, this will inevitably there's a there's a lot of capex that has to go into these decisions it's not it's not like any company can just you know deliver a vape pen without uh, without previous investment i think that in many of those circumstances we're largely over the hump on on those capex so we're, we're getting to a point where if any capital comes into each of these businesses is it is actually used for variable production growth capital uh, and and nonetheless I mean, this is where the industry needs to go. Otherwise, we're just going to become a agricultural commodity uh, where trim is going to flood each individual market, as we've seen in Canada, and margins are going to erode as the as the buyers pay less and less and less. Um, with that being said, cannabis 2.0 products, whether it's in Canada or the U.S., higher margins established to them, better differentiation, better ability to create brands with unique offerings. And so this is absolutely going to be a positive development and going to be more sustainable from a margin basis, as I mentioned. No, I agree. And, um, you know, the change in pattern on consumption is also going to force a lot of businesses to evaluate how their path to market uh, has to change. And I know that through so much of a lot of time, there's been a struggle with um, open the various marks that are opening and the changes in the regulatory framework that seem to hit everybody on a constant basis. But companies are constantly making progress. One of the challenges, of course, that comes and goes is people's understanding of EU GMP and other things and the value of that to, to the enterprise as a whole. Do you see the um, LATAM markets being scrutinized differently? We know it is financially, but do you see it being scrutinized differently in terms of um, people looking for M&A opportunities? And do you think the big activity there is going to come out of uh, another industry or is it going to come from foreign cannabis companies just looking to get involved? And by another, I mean, as the markets open up internationally, will it be CPG companies that really start moving in as opposed to the cannabis companies, which took a step, then backed off and seemed to be still looking what to do. Sure. I, I think that you're, you're right. We've seen most of the largest companies uh, ac across mostly Canada because they had the biggest international exposure all retrench and try to get more economies of scale. So I think that it's going to take uh, some amount of time uh, on a, on a show me basis with backward looking financials for the uh, larger cannabis companies to invest further capital beyond what is a sunk cost in LATAM for them right. to come back in. So I think that the advantage in LATAM is going to come to the locals. They're going to know the, uh, the, the local politics. They're going to know the registration uh, requirements. They're going to know the, the ins and outs of the regulatory framework uh, better than everyone else going forward. They're going to have the local mover advantage. So I, I agree with you. I think it's going to be more local 
family offices, local CBG companies that are going to take advantage of uh, the larger cannabis companies exiting. Uh, no, I, I agree. And uh, I think there also is going to have to be a heavy round of consolidation in, uh, in Colombia. You know, Peru's getting going, but much smarter about how licenses will be issued and limited in their own way. Um, and Uruguay, of course, has a limited number of licenses with Ecuador now, you know, getting going, but still way behind. And Mexico, uh, probably six to nine months behind where Brazil is today. Um, what do you see happening in terms of the activity there, though? I mean, I know, you know, obviously, Plan is a, col a company in Colombia. And uh, I look at the market there and... I see it has to be consolidated. There should be two or three companies, not 176. What do you think is really going to happen over the next 18 months there? Is it going to just get filtered out or is there going to be that M&A activity? I think for the M&A activity uh, to take place, you're going to need somebody with a stronger balance sheet to withstand some of the burns that they'd be taking on for high quality assets. Mm -hmm. So inevitably, inevitably, uh, of that amount of companies that you said, which is uh, astronomical, there's going to be a number of names that are going to have to go away or pivot. Yep. Um, and those with the best assets should shine through. But again, it's going to take, that's why I, I, I focus us back to uh, LATAM, CPG companies or, or, or family office types in some capacity. Those are the ones that are going to have to come in, recognize a positive uh, asset when they see it and, and be able to stem a burn for you know 12 to 18 months. I, no, and I fundamentally agree. And I think the, uh, you know, I know that companies have been work, working hard to get costs in line as well, which uh, that rationalization needed to come to a lot of firms. Um, hopefully all of them get there in terms of making those rationalizations because it makes M&A activity much simpler um, across the front. But Adam, we're at the... Uh, the end of our time for today. And I'd like to thank you very much for joining us. Um, if, you know, individuals, companies that are looking for advice, um, you know, I recommend they turn to Alta as one of the, uh, the firms they talk to and to Adam in particular, incredibly knowledgeable and uh, experienced. But Adam, how should people reach out to you and to ATB? Sure. I uh, appreciate it. Uh, feel free to uh, give out my email, Richard, uh, which is acarlson at atb.com. And I'd be happy to respond and hopefully we can uh, look together with some new clients. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks to everybody for listening. I'm Richard Zwicky on the Green Peak and we've had Adam Carlson from ATB.